0: Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Kelsey Bowler. And I'm Lauren Evans. Today we're going to be discussing whether or not it's appropriate to adult at Disney World, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's planet-saving decision to give Archie only one other sibling, the battle for equal pay for the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, we have some updates on that case, and finally... We'll share our interview with Heritage Boss Lady Jessica Anderson about a recent survey conducted by Heritage Action for America that reveals the top issues that concern women, whether their opinions really differ from those of men, and how women really feel about President Donald Trump's performance and his personality. Specifically, we'll discuss what the results tell us about suburban women and their take on the so-called soft issues such as immigration and abortion. And of course, we'll crown a special Problematic Woman of the Week.
1: Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left.
0: If you identify as a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. Your support really does make a difference.
1: Is it appropriate to adult at Disney? I'm sure we can all remember our first trip to Disney and myself being a Florida native. We went all the time, the happiest place on earth. But now that I'm an adult and no longer a kid, is it weird for me to go back? Last week, an old Facebook post went viral on Twitter about a mom and her disgust with childless millennials who still go to Disney, even calling them to be banned from the park. The tweet reads, people without children need to be banned, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Mothers with children should be allowed to skip all the line, exclamation point, exclamation point. So it's kind of dramatic. I, I, I see that she has a point Disney's supposed to be for kids. It's literally based off mostly cartoons. But Kelsey, what do you think? Is it weird for adults to go to Disney?
0: Uh Well, I am an adult, and I have gone to Disney World as an adult. Specifically, I went to Epcot. And I have to say, there's something different about going back when you are an adult. You You just see it differently. I get her point that it can be frustrating. The lines are just terrible in general, and it's actually a reason that I'm surprised this is a problem, that there are so many... <laughs> Millennials going to Disney just because they want to and not because they have children who want to go. But I don't think millennials should be shamed for wanting to go to Disney, especially because I imagine a lot of them are going because their parents didn't have the money to go bring them when they were younger. Disney World is expensive. It's over $100 per person, per ticket, per day. So imagine if you want to go for a couple days. It's really the most economical way to do Disney is to bring yourself and a friend and
1: have your friend pay for themselves and you pay for yourself. Yeah. and, And like I said, I went all the time growing up from the time I was one until I went two years ago the last time. And I don't really remember going as a kid. I'm sure I had fun and I'm sure it was a great day with my family. But, you know, my parents could have taken me to the park or the pool and it would have been a great trip. But I, I really remember the first thing that I ever did without my parents. I was 17. It was the coolest thing. We drove. I, I'm from Jacksonville. It's about two hours away from Orlando. And we got to spend the day and get a hotel room that night at Disney World. And it, it's just like the first real independent thing I did. and And to me is so much more meaningful than a trip where I got a balloon when I was four and her idea of like, Oh, moms with children should get to skip the line. You're just going to have another giant line of moms and children. that's probably going to be rowdier because it's not going to have regular adults in the line. I think she has a good point. I think Disney should think through what she's saying. And maybe there's certain areas of the park are for children. Maybe they do more adult only things to attract adults to different parts of the park. Uh, Epcot in college Again, we would "quote unquote" drink around the world. And <laughs> that so, sounds awesome. Yeah, what that is is you would get a drink at every country. So you get like, Lauren, how many countries are there? I believe there's eight or nine. <laughs> you would share a drink at a country. It's, okay, it's, people actually make koozies, and so you you every country you go to, you check off the the country on the koozie.
0: And I know there's also the Disney Marathon. My cousin mm-hmm. has participated in that, but there was a surprising amount of support for this. Woman's rant on social media, a lot of people arguing that millennials going to Disney World is weird. Um, look, it's a little weird, like if that's where you want to go every single year for your one vacation. But I have a feeling for most millennials who are going. it's a one time thing,
1: yeah, I mean, there's there's weird Disney people, but there's weird everything. you know, there's weird comic book people. um so yeah, do do what makes you happy if you are a childless millennial at the park. Please be kind to the children. Please be kind to the moms with kids. Understand that it is a privilege that you're there. Um, but those moms with kids, just let, let everybody have fun. It's the happiest place on earth. Just be happy.
0: That's a great takeaway. Well, let's move on to our next topic. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are on a mission to save the planet, apparently, by only giving Archie one sibling. So Prince Harry participated in an interview. With Dr. Jane Goodall, you might know her from her famous research on monkeys and gorillas and so forth. This interview was for an edition of British Vogue, which... Meghan Markle actually served as the guest editor for, so she pieced together the whole magazine. He said, to maximum, when talking about how many children they would have in the midst of a conversation, a larger conversation about the environment, he said, we are the one species on this planet that seems to think that this place belongs to us and only us. I think weirdly, because of the people that I've met and the places that I've been fortunate enough to go... I've always had a connection and a love for nature. I view it differently now without question. Now as in now that he's had a child. Um, I'm still waiting to find out if they care this much about the environment, whether they'll give up their private jets, their multimillion dollar (laughs) estates, their motocades, whatever you want to call it. You know, I imagine they have quite a large carbon footprint So to me, it sounds a little ridiculous to be concerned about adding another child to the planet who could be that child to solve climate change. Who knows? What what do you think? This is is something we're hearing more and more. We actually talked about it recently on an episode about Miley
1: Cyrus. So and his brother, William, too, has three kids. So I don't know (laughs) if he's throwing a little shade. But yeah, it's just ridiculous. There's other ways that you can reduce your carbon footprint, Kelsey. I think it. You brought up great points about the motorcades that they have and the private jets that they fly on. Kids are a blessing. Kids are what we need to populate the earth and grow as a society. And and not giving kids and, and especially when you have the resources to have a big family, it's it's disappointing and and it's disappointing because they mean well and they they want to do good things, but their their brain's just in the in the wrong place and it's yeah they're kind of shaming people for having more than two children. Yeah.
0: I loved this tweet from the Catholic vote. Uh, They said, another debate question, speaking of the 2020 Democrat debates, another debate question we'd like to hear. Some studies have concluded that having fewer children is the most effective way to reduce a family's carbon footprint. Would you favor legislation setting limits on family
1: size? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how soon until... The left is there. Yeah, I would would be afraid to ask because I don't want (laughs) to know what the answer is. (laughs) Oh, my
0: gosh. So in this September issue of British Vogue, which, again, Meghan Markle guest edited, she revealed that she's also teaming up with British department stores and a, a brand called Jigsaw to launch her own workwear clothing line where for every item that you purchase, she'll give away one item to charity. (laughs) This, I'm just like, what a life you have. Yeah. Like, you just get to sit there and edit magazines and design clothes and then say you're doing so much to help charity and pat yourself on the back. I absolutely support her passion i think you know anyone in that position would be doing just that you know doing what they can to raise money for different charities that you care about but this all just sounds <laughs> so like virtue signaling signaling to the rest of us
1: yeah like imagine if you had a big trust fund and you had somebody who paid for your house and, and your transportation and then you're like oh i'll give away you know everything that i make and you're like no you you've already been given everything and and for some people even just giving a small percentage of their income just means that they have to go w- without eating out or without going out with their friends and that's a major sacrifice and and i think you're 100% right kelsey it's it's great that she is doing this and she is trying to make a difference but it, it it's not a sacrifice to her
0: right so in the in the vogue edition it's called forces for change it features trailblazing change makers, breaking barriers. It includes conversations with the former first lady, Michelle Obama, which is something interesting that Meghan Markle is far more political than Kate Middleton. Um, you know, she's constantly bringing up issues like feminism, like climate change. And, and now we have an interview with former first lady, Michelle Obama, to look forward to. So, look, again, she's doing great work great things i absolutely support her doing this work for charity but sometimes you know taking to the pages of british vogue to brag about it i'm just like it must be nice i I, I wish i could just sit back and you know design clothes and give away money to charity and feel great about myself
1: we maybe should keep score in the woke olympics to see who's doing what
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, the last topic we want to get to before we share our interview with Jessica Anderson is an update on the U.S. women's soccer team's lawsuit that they are being paid unfairly when compared to men. So after remaining largely silent on the lawsuit brought forth by the U.S. women's national team against the U.S. Soccer Federation, the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation, Carlos Codero, is striking back. He told the Wall Street Journal via a letter that a pay analysis conducted by U.S. Soccer staff and reviewed by an accounting firm shows that women actually make more than men. According to the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Codero said the Federation's analysis showed that U.S. Soccer paid female players $34.1 $34.1 million in salaries and game bonuses from 2010 to 2018, while paying the men $26.4 million during that same period. Women's team members receive salaries plus bonuses, while the men receive only bonuses, though larger ones, according to the letter. The compensation structure for the two teams is different because of their respective collective bargaining agreements and not because of gender, he said.
1: Molly Levinson, a spokeswoman for the players, called the letter, quote, a sad attempt by the USSF to quell the overwhelming tide of support the USWNT has received from everyone from fans to sponsors to the United States Congress. But according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, the Federation said U.S. women's games had generated a net profit defined as ticket revenue minus event expenses in just two of 11 years, analy- analysis. In just two of 11 years analyzed 2016 and 2017. Across those 11 years, women's games generated a net loss of $27.5 million, Cordero's letter said. The letter didn't list men's game net results. A spokesman did say, though, that men's games from 2009 to 2019 produced a net loss of $3.1 million. Ultimately, the best way to close any gaps between the women's and men's games is to do everything we can as a federation and as fans to grow women's soccer here in the United States and globally, Cordero wrote.
0: So... (laughs) The U.S. women's soccer team, according to them, is actually overpaid and loses money for the federation. This was a pretty big story compared to how much this equal pay lawsuit was dominating the conversation just a couple weeks ago. And yet, Lauren, I don't know if anybody in big media will care about this story or or
1: even cover it. No, I mean, they won't. It's. I can't believe they're even still going forward with this lawsuit now that the numbers show that, that they make a lot of money. And the fact that soccer doesn't make money, both the men's and the women's, still just it—it's crazy to me.
0: Right. I mean, I—I'm a perfect example of why I like soccer. I love when the World Cup comes around. I love specifically seeing the women's team win. But do I spend a penny on watching it in those in between years? Absolutely not. All right, we will keep you updated on that lawsuit as the case proceeds. But in the meantime, I want to quickly share one of my favorite podcasts that is produced right here at the Heritage Foundation. It's called Heritage Explains. It comes out weekly, and it really just breaks down all the policy issues we hear being discussed in the news at the 101 level. Hosts Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher mix in news clips and music to tell a story, but also bring in heritage experts to break down these complex issues. Highly recommend you check it out. They are a 10 to 15 minute quick explainer podcasts that bring you up to speed and also are very entertaining. You can, of course, find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We even put the full episode on YouTube. Again, just search for Heritage
1: Explains. Welcome back. We have a real treat for you today. I am in studio with Jessica Anderson, Heritage Boss Lady and Vice President of Heritage Action for America. And before working for Heritage Action, Jessica served as the Associate Director This is a really long title, Associate Director.
2: (laughs) The good titles are the longest. (laughs) Did you have an acronym? I should have. I should have come up with one.
1: It is Associate Director Intergovernmental Affairs and Strategic Initiatives for the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump administration. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) And fun fact, Jessica is a fellow Floridian and a University of Florida Gator.
2: That's right. Go Gators. Go Gators.
1: Welcome, Jessica. This week, Heritage Action released three major opinion polls that provide a targeted look at what animates voters in strategic areas around the country. To start off, can you tell us about the survey and who those targeted voters and areas are?
2: Absolutely. So first, thanks for having me. It's, It's awesome to be with you guys today. I totally consider myself a problematic woman, and so I'm amongst good company. So what we did with these polls is we spent the last four months... Digging in and trying to understand what's animating voters across the country with the goal of unifying Republican voters while still drawing in independents, moderate Dems, suburbanites, suburban women uh, and working class swing voters, all with the goal that they would have a cohesive coalition that could come together to build out a strong conservative policy platform and through this polling that we've just released, we found that there really are four distinct areas that tie all of these voters together. And we can talk about them a little bit today, but just briefly, they're immigration, culture, the workforce and economic fairness.
1: So just to start us off, what are some of the most surprising things from the polling data?
2: So one of the things that jumped out to me the most, and, and I guess some of this was intuitive, but just how incredibly prolific immigration continues to be as an issue both for traditional Republicans, independents, suburbanites, moderate Dems, and working class. And the study around immigration is not necessarily what you would think. I mean, when you look at President Trump's rhetoric, for instance, on immigration, it's all build the wall. It's all uh, focused on the national security side, the MS-13 gangs. What blew up the charts on these polls is that people, in particular suburban women, were really concerned with the overuse of social services by illegal immigrant immigrants. So that tells me that there's a narrative that's going on in this country on the illegal immigration side that's not just the safety and security, but it's also the everyday and how illegal immigrants, frankly, just impact our daily lives. So that was one. The second thing that really jumped out to me was the prevalence of higher ed. And what I mean by that is higher ed really is kind of a number one enemy right now of folks. You've got the antidotes of the college admissions scandals. You have higher tuition fees. You've got student loans. You've got parents that are freaking out that their kids have good SAT scores so they can get into college. And they're finding that it's just not worth it. I mean, this poll in particular struck me. Sixty nine percent of suburban women found that higher education was not worth the price today. Sixty nine percent, which is really high. And I think a sad commentary to just how far our education system has gone off the rails from actually providing, you know, true American civics. So when you're looking at this
1: poll data, is there a big difference between the answers that the women provide and the men provide?
2: Um yes and no it depends on what the issue is. Surprisingly men and women don't have that big of a differences, but the reality is is that men care about different issues more than women care about other issues. So when women are looking particularly at the open set of policy issues that they can respond to, they really zoom in and resonate with qual- what I would call quality of life issues. So these include things like healthcare, education, security, work-life balance, paid family leave fits in there and then how they think about abortion and social issues specifically on the transgender stuff that resonates very very deeply and fiercely with women versus men that are more drawn towards the economic side and the fiscal side and the regulatory side now the differences aren't you know huge that everyone should drop what they're doing daily doing and craft policies around just men or women. That's not what I'm saying. But there are specific nuances when you look at some of these suburban districts in particular that we should just frankly be aware of. And at the end of the day, you know, we've always said that all issues are women's issues. And I think that's really true in this case as well. So there's this
1: really interesting article that came out today in AP titled Suburban Women Recoil as Trump Dives into Racial Politics. And in this article, they talked about a woman named Carol Evans, no relation to me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that despite... Thinking President Trump has done some good things for our country, she says that she doesn't support him. Um, and basically what this article says is that it doesn't really matter what Trump does or what he stands for. Women will just dislike him for his language and the way that he speaks. Did you find this in your, the poll?
2: We actually did. It's really interesting because there's this unique dichotomy that's happening between Trump, the person, and then Trump, the policy leader. And what I think this AP article is trying to get at is if you just focus on Trump the person, the bottom falls out and it falls out in particular among women. But that's not something that's not we're not able to overcome. And that's where I think the AP article just totally missed out on a a really critical part of going into 2020, which is that so many candidates are going to try to say, look, I want to run on the policy. I want to run on the policies that the Trump administration has promoted, um, has achieved, has accomplished um, at maybe things that are even in working draft phases. But the point is, is that there are enough policies from the Trump administration and on the Trump campaign side to get people excited about it. And that's where I think there's there's a real opportunity to make this not about his personality, but instead to make it about his policies. But you're right. I mean, women have a much more pessimistic view of Trump's economy than men do. And this pessimistic view can be taken at face value as an opinion of the of the economy or it's an indicator, like this article is suggesting, of Trump's unpopularity among Democrat and independent uh, battleground district women. Both of those things are mixing together in a blender to influence the response. But it's not it's not overcomable. Is that a word? (laughs) We'll, We'll go with it. It's not something we can't overcome because policy can run a campaign and policy can animate voters. And our survey proves that, that there is a path forward on policy specifically around those four areas.
1: And so looking into some of these, quote, softer issues, these moral issues, where do women stand on abortion or the transgender issue?
2: So the transgender issue really popped out on this survey, in particular when we looked at swing States and swing districts. The second and third surveys looked at five uh, state uh, districts or swing states and then 15 battleground districts. And when we were looking at that, what we found was that 51 percent of suburban women do not think biological males should be permitted to play in high school sports. So you've got an over fifty percent contingency, and then when you add in men, and then you add in traditional Republicans, that number is closer to eighty percent. And so, you know, when we look at the cultural issues, there is something to something to look at there because women are on the front lines of the culture fight. They're maybe they're home with their kids, they're reading um, their kids' textbooks, they're going to their PTA and school meetings, they're seeing firsthand. How the left's extremism around culture is playing out within schools, and in particular now on the sports field. And so when you look at those social issues, you see that women are animated by this, they do care. And I think that's something, going back to your previous question, if the Trump administration were to take this on, he'd have a real opportunity to entice those voters that might have been turned off on some of his personality politics and really look at the policy on how he's championing the woman, he's championing the traditional family, and that's something to be celebrated.
1: And so how do we we combat that narrative? You think about the first Women's March, the largest one, happened just a few days after Trump's inauguration. It seems like the women's movement in society is synonymous with being anti-Trump. How do we reach those women and
2: show them that conservative policies are really what's best? Well, I think we have to reach them with the policies that we know that they care about. So when you look at this survey, we know that suburban women care the most about immigration, we asked an open-ended question of what do you care the most about, fill in the blank. 21% was that immigration. 15% was the second one with only for Donald Trump. <laughs> and then he's not even in a <laughs> policy issue. So that just tells you how how much he resonates. But we know that they care about immigration. We know that they care about education. We know that they care about moral issues. Um, and if you can f- – Create campaigns and policy platforms around the bedrock of those quality of life issues, I would put healthcare in there as well. Then we're actually starting to talk to suburban women in a way that they care about. You know, we ran we ran ads on the tax cuts, the tax TCGA, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act from two years ago at Heritage Action. And that was an incredible bill, a lot for us to be incredibly proud of. Every single working family saved money. Um, and the benefits are are, are paramount, but the t- the tax element didn't connect with the suburban woman, and the disconnect was that they it's not that they didn't value that it's not that they didn't see the money they just overvalue the immigration and the education and the healthcare pieces and the moral and cultural side. So, for us to do right by these voters, we need to actually talk to them with the issues that they care about. And all of this is, is backed by conservative principle. And that's the best part of, of working at an organization like Heritage is that we know the roadmap. We know the pathway forward. And now we just need to connect it in the right places across the country.
1: So you've been talking a lot about suburban women. Can you first talk about why you targeted suburban women and why their voice is important? And then also, how do women vary in their opinions between suburban, urban and
2: rural? So women outnumber and outvote men across the country. They did this in 2016 when many of them um, came on board for Trump. They did this in 18 when many of them uh, did not support Republican House seats because of the uh, coattails of the president. They actually took a a negative vote uh, for the reason of kind of chastising him. And we anticipate that this group of voters – particularly suburban women, will greatly influence 2020. The survey itself, though, was a holistic view. So not only did we look at suburban women, we looked at suburban men, we looked at working class, we looked at independents, we looked at moderate Dems, and frankly, at urban voters. And I think there's a really interesting meme that's out there right now, which I think is patently false. But a lot of people are saying, "Okay, the Republican Party is now moving in to being the party of the working class and the suburban voter, well, let's just swap that with Democrats who are now becoming the party of the urban voter. To that, I would say that that's that's a fallacy. That's a false choice. Conservative principles apply to everyone, regardless of where you live, whether you're in an urban city like Detroit and you look at our housing, conservative housing policies, or you're in a a suburban area like Fairfax County or or Mecklenburg County. I mean, these are counties that really, truly care about the same issues. And so it's important not to, in polling, not to slice and dice everyone too much, where then you just lose the macro picture, which is that all Americans want a better life. They want freedom. They want opportunity. They want the chance to flourish. And they can do that with conservative policies.
1: And so looking backwards a little bit, why is it important that we study the way women vote and study What really motivates them? And and how did they shape the 2016 and 2018 elections?
2: So in 16, suburban women really showed up um, for Trump. And it was interesting because I think uh, they showed up not just for him, but they showed up against Hillary. And that's an important differentiating faction because they were casting a no vote against Hillary Clinton, and that was significant. So they may have had the same attitudes towards President Trump the person then, but it was a clear difference between who they were voting for on the top of the ticket. In 18, like I said, president wasn't at the top of the ticket. That was a down-ballot midterm race. And so you were looking at Senate and House seats, a couple governor seats, governor's races. And so in that case, you saw women stay home, that they just flat out stayed home. Um, or they switched parties. And so that's where I think we've got our work cut out for us to make this election in 2020 about the policies and about how conservative principles can override any feelings about over the personalities of one individual or another. So it's an important, it's an important group. It's one not to take for granted, um, but it's not one that's lost. And it's certainly not one that we should just forget about. Are women more likely to be swing voters since they do change Women are a big chunk of the swing voter group for sure. And just because women outnumber and outvote men in general, that's what you're going to find. And they're also less inclined to vote, you know, just because of what they're if they have an R or D next to their name. I mean, there's there's a huge study that shows that they can swing back and forth. And part of that is just the makeup of how a woman thinks versus how a man might think.
1: So how can we use this knowledge in our day-to-day when we're talking to our friends to really be reaching them
2: so i think first and foremost is just reminding folks that personality of whomever doesn't need to overtake the policy and it's challenging right and i get that but at the end of the day what we care about is and what i think our friends and family cares about is advancing conservative policy and and advancing these principles that we know will work And frankly, that we know are needed today, not just on these policy fights based on the issues that we've described today, but on the larger macro of going against the extremism of the liberal left that we see right now and their, you know, swan dive into the extremism of socialism. So if you're talking to a friend or a family member, do you want America to become a socialist country? Chances are people are going to say no and in that case, then you have a chance to unpack these issues and say, well, we too are fighting against socialism. Liberals right now in every single one of these policy issues are advancing a socialist agenda, whether it's free health care for all, healthcare for illegal immigrants, free college tuition, forgiving everyone's student loans, whatever it is. I mean, it's trillions and trillions of dollars that just adds up. And that is not the path that America should take. And everyday average Americans understand that.
1: So on college campuses and with young people I feel like they almost have to come out as conservatives and it's like a secret you have to hold. Are you saying that there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel that even though you might feel alone, a lot of your friends probably aren't as extreme as you think they might be?
2: Well, it depends on where you're coming from, right? <laughs> yeah. So so it depends where you're coming from. I will say that one of the great things about Heritage Action is that we have an activist footprint in every single congressional district across the country. That includes Nancy Pelosi's district just as much as it includes Mark Meadows. And so, you know, we think that conservatives may make up a silent majority in some places of the country, and that doesn't have to be like that. If you speak up, you can find another, you can find another, you can find another, and great groups like Heritage Action can help you to do that, especially when you're coming off of the college campus. You're getting involved in the workforce, you're being told all these lies from you know everything from Sex in the City to Glamour magazine to rediscovering friends from the nineties, which is hilarious. (laughs) I grew up with that show and twenty-year-olds are asking me if they've ever heard of it. I'm like, what? (laughs) So, you know, as you rediscover friends and you're kind of told this lifestyle is okay. the reality is, is that there are there are conservative women everywhere and they're looking for a friend and they're looking for someone to join forces with and to, you know, have a life that promotes freedom and opportunity, but opportunity for all.
1: So before I let you go, we ask every one of our guests, do you consider yourself a feminist and why or why not?
2: So I consider myself a family feminist. And I think I like that, that. The, the disclaimer is really important. Unfortunately, the left has commandeered the term feminism and made it to basically be synonymous with being pro-choice or pro-life. And I think that's a mistake because feminism and the issues around women are so much broader than just healthcare. And they're so much broader than just this binary choice between being pro-life or pro-choice. So when I think of myself as a family feminist, that means I'm pro the traditional nuclear family. I am pro protecting the most vulnerable, which includes being pro-life. But I'm also pro women having a healthy work-life balance. I have a six-year-old. I have a second little baby on the way. I'm working and we're making it work. And so I think you can be a family feminist and, and survive in today's culture.
1: I love that so much. So, Jess, before we let you go, if people want to get more information about the survey, can you tell them where they can find it?
2: Super easy. HeritageAction.com. It's the first thing you're going to see on our website. You can click through whether you want to look at 300-plus pages of crosstabs and be up all night. And if you do, call me and I'll nerd out with you. <laughs> or if you want the cheat sheets and can just look through the first you know, 30 pages or so of our graphics that really detail these polls. And hopefully it'll be helpful to everyone as we grapple with these important issues heading into 2020. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for
1: having me. Welcome back. We are about to crown our problematic woman of the week. But before we do, I wanted to let you know about another podcast that we do here at The Daily Signal called The Daily Signal Podcast. It is Monday through Friday. And if you're one of those people who are just overwhelmed by the news cycle, it changes pretty much every minute. This is such a great podcast for you. It's it's 20 to 25 minutes, and they really get into the issues that are important for conservatives and people who really think independently. And hosts Kate and Daniel, they break down topics, but then they also have these really great interviews with heritage scholars and just really important people to discuss what's going on today. If you're interested, go ahead and check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now over to you, Kels.
0: Yes, it is that time to crown our problematic woman of the week. So this story is a little complicated, a little strange, but I felt the desire to share it with you because often on this podcast we are talking about feminism and so-called women's inequality here in the United States. I think so often women lose perspective of the privilege and the equality that we have here So according to CBS, the estranged wife of Dubai's ruler applied for protective orders in a British court Tuesday using laws that are intended to safeguard victims of forced marriages and domestic abuse. Princess Haya, who is 45, asked for a forced marriage protection order and a non-molestation order during a British high court hearing that centered on the welfare of her two children with the Dubai ruler. The forced marriage protection order applied to the children, while the non-molestation order is for herself. The latter, according to CBS, is a protective order available to people in Britain who have been victims of domestic violence. She asks for custody of the children during the preliminary hearing. The names and ages of the children are not allowed to be published under British law. So we don't know the full details of what exactly is going on here. This was a really interesting story to dig into because just a couple months ago, international media was reporting on one of their daughters who tried to flee Dubai after a appearing in a 40-minute video saying she had been imprisoned. Here's a quick clip from that video. I'm making this video because
1: it could be the last video I make. Yeah. And if you are watching this video, it's not such a good thing. Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad
0: situation. So I watched more of this video. It's pretty frightening. And again, we don't know the details of this case, what exactly is going on and who it involves. There's just a lot of speculation that one of the daughters is being imprisoned and, and abused in the process. So again, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but I think it's important to at least be knowledgeable that these types of situations and, and cases are going on in different countries. It's a stark reminder of the privilege we have living here in the United States where, where we do have equality and laws that protect us.
1: Yeah, Kelsey, I really am glad that you brought it up, especially, too, right after talking about the women's soccer team talk about privilege. This is women who are making tens of hundreds and, and even millions of dollars for playing a game, and they're calling themselves victims because they, they might not be making as much money as they They might not be making as <laughs> much money... Or they might be making more. <laughs> ...than their male cal- counterparts. And there are women across the world who are being forced into marriages, being raped in these marriages, and, and then they have to worry about their children. And they're the real victims. And, and yeah, women do have problems in American society and we do, do need to lo- look out for them. But... We're so quick to slip into this victim mentality, and it's just really great to to be able to put that in perspective for women like this, and and that that clip was just so heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the Princess Haya, the mother, is having to go to pretty extreme measures to try to, you know, I don't don't know if it's rescue her daughters, uh, get them out of the country, but something scary is going on there, and that's another story we'll try to keep you updated on. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Kelsey, for bringing that up. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's episode of Problematic Women.
0: Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please
1: subscribe and share. Conservatives really do need your support in the podcast world. And we would really greatly appreciate a five-star rating or review on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, anywhere. Just say nice things about us. (laughs) Because we're so great. (laughs) Have a great week, guys. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Associate producer, Samantha Rank. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko.
0: We produce problematic women in remembrance of our
1: dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.